Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. The U.S. might just be 10 days away from defaulting. Could a meeting coming up in the next hour change that? The lead starts right now. President Biden and House Speaker McCarthy meeting in a matter of minutes. What is on? What is off the negotiating table? As McCarthy insists, he needs to see a deal this week to avoid default. Plus, a new name in the 2024 presidential race. I'm running for president of the United States of America. Republican Tim Scott setting his sights on the White House and his GOP backers hope the senator from South Carolina can be the one to beat Trump and then Biden and a not guilty plea today in the murders of four Idaho college students and the gag order keeping information secret in this case. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. We're going to start today with our money lead. Can they make a deal? In the next hour, President Joe Biden and House Speaker Kevin McCarthy will meet face to face at the White House as the United States careens toward an economic catastrophe that only those two can prevent. We're just 10 days away from the U.S. potentially running out of money to pay its bills. According to Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen, that could happen as soon as June 1st. But the timeline could be even more urgent than that because this afternoon, Speaker McCarthy told CNN that a deal needs to be made this week for practical reasons if they're going to be able to actually craft the legislation to get across the finish line in time. You need to have a deal tonight to avoid a default. I thought it would be better to have a deal sooner. I think we could we can get a deal tonight, we get a deal tomorrow, but you've got to get something done this week to be able to pass it and move it to the Senate. Now, failure to reach a deal would mean a debt default for the first time in the history of the United States of America, and that would lead to a likely recession and job losses and checks delayed for federal workers and pauses in Social Security payments. Let's bring in CNN's Manu Raju on Capitol Hill. Uh, Manu, uh, you spoke with Speaker McCarthy not long ago. Is he optimistic that a deal can be made uh, ahead of this meeting that he's about to have at the White House? Well, well, Jake, he says that the talks right now are at a sensitive moment in which they need to start making some critical decisions and get a deal sometime this week in order to move through the legislative process, get it through the House, get it through the Senate. That would be a tall order. They have significant differences to bridge over federal spending, over certain policy issues that Republicans have been pushing for. And in negotiation that typically takes months, they have to deal with this in just a matter of days and so much riding on this meeting tonight and the days ahead. He said a meeting that occurred earlier today between top negotiators on both sides were just simply made to understand what their differences are before this key meeting tonight. But he made clear a deal must be in reach within days. I think the discussions today were understanding both sides, furthering discussing 
the areas where we have differences of opinion so they could brief the president as well, and I'll have a meeting with the president later today at 530. Did the president give on any of that? When you, you spoke to him last night, the negotiators, has he given any way on the issue of rolling back domestic spending levels like you've been asking? Look, we, we have nothing's agreed to. But you need a majority of the House Republican Conference to vote for. Is that right? Look, I firmly believe what we're negotiating right now, a majority of Republicans will, will see that it is a right place to put us on a right path. Now, that is a key point right at the end there, because McCarthy would not say explicitly if a majority of House Republicans must support this deal, if a deal is reached in order to put that on the House floor. He just simply said he firmly believes that will be the case. He also downplayed the notion that perhaps there could be a revolt from the right flank of his conference if they were to cut a deal that they didn't like. Some members of that so-called House Freedom Caucus have called on him to simply abandon the talks with the president. Of course, the talks are still ongoing, but he still feels confident that he He'll be able to maintain his speakership, win over House Republicans. But first, Jake, order of business is get a deal. It's still uncertain that they can get there. Then all the efforts to try to wrangle the votes will happen in the days ahead. But the pressure now on intensifying on the president and on the speaker every day that a deal is not reached. So, Manu, in that clip, you asked the speaker about um, their efforts to uh, push the White House to agree to cap spending uh, at a previous level. Another big sticking point for Republicans is they keep, they, they keep pushing, they want uh, work requirements uh, for uh, individuals, certain individuals, able-bodied, without dependents, uh, to get government uh, benefits. Um, that's also still a requirement here, yes. Yeah, and it's a big part of the negotiations. McCarthy has maintained for some time that that is a red line, specifically talking about work requirements. They had initially pushed for on several programs, including the Medicaid program that deals with uh, low-income health insurance. The White House has said that that is off the table. The Republicans are pushing for food stamps to have some work requirements there. But when I talked to the speaker about that just moments ago, he did not say explicitly that it is a red line, but indicated that it must be part of the discussion. Every, so that's, that's, your, that's still a red line for every you? Every study has shown it helps the economy, helps people, and it helps our supply chain make us less dependent upon China. Look, there is a number... But is that, of, is that a red line? You had said that's look, a red line. There is a number of places that we have been discussing. There's a number of places the president discussed. That's why we're going to get together. We're not going to cut the deal here, which I would have loved to be able to do. But we're going to work together, solve this problem, and make America stronger. So again, any deal would likely have some level of spending cuts, perhaps some policy changes, including some discussion of work requirements. If the White House were to go that direction, though, they could face a revolt from the left because a number of Democrats don't want any sort of work rules on social safety net programs. So therein lies the very difficult balancing act in keeping everybody together, trying to get a deal and get this through Congress in a matter of days. And Jake, I asked the speaker about why they didn't make the same demands, Republicans, for spending cuts when Donald Trump was president when they suspended the debt limit three times. He said the speaker was different. He said it was Nancy Pelosi. Well, Pelosi was the speaker one time when the debt limit was suspended under Trump. The other two times, Republican Speaker Paul Ryan. Hmm. And, and, you know, props to both you and the speaker, I have to say, because anybody who wasn't watching this a few hours ago live, he was just walking through uh, the statuary hall where you are and you just grabbed him and he, he took your he answered your questions for like 15 minutes. Uh, so uh, good to see uh, Manu Raju on Capitol Hill. Thanks so much. Thanks. Here to discuss Mark Zandi, the chief economist for Moody's Analytics. Mark, are you confident that that Republicans and Democrats are going to be able to make a deal in time and avoid a default? Confident, Jake? Uh, that's a strong word. No. <laughs> uh, I mean, history would suggest that, you know, we're 
they will, that there's going to be a lot of drama and we're seeing the drama and they're going to take it right down to the wire and they're taking it right down to the wire. But at the end of this, they pass a piece of legislation that increases the debt limit and they do it just in time. So that's history. And, you know, if we forecast based on history, I would say yes. But, you know, as you just pointed out in your conversation, there's a lot of differences today compared to the past, particularly with regard to our VEX politics and kind of the makeup of the house and a lot of other issues. So this, this, no, it's hard to be confident in anything here. Yeah. And Speaker McCarthy's talking about needing a deal this week The you know, Janet Yellen, the treasury secretary says that the money could start to run out June 1st. That's 10 days. McCarthy says, um, you know, we need to deal this week so that we can write the legislation so that the Senate and the house can both pass it. Um, what kind of impact is, is that going to have on the economy? Uh, this, this, rapidly approaching deadline as we get closer and closer. I mean, are, is the market going to start to, to, is the bottom going to start to fall out? Well, I think with each passing day, if there's not a deal and the rhetoric turns darker and darker, yeah, I think we'll see a lot of red on the screen. And, you know, by this time next week on the other side of uh, Memorial Day, um, you know, if there's no deal and the rhetoric is still pretty dark uh, and obviously that June 1st deadline is dead ahead, I think we'll start to see some pretty bad days in the market. I mean, the 2011 debt limit drama might be a good analog. Back then, the stock market fell 17% uh, in a couple of three-week period when they were going through the same kind of thing we're going through now. And we had days that were down 5%. And just to put that into context, that would mean today the Dow would fall 1,500 points. So I I wouldn't rule that out. And by the way, Jake, that may be what's necessary to actually light a fire and get lawmakers to generate the political will necessary to sign on the dotted line and increase the limit. Yeah, although that is obviously a lot of wealth that is, poof, disappearing. Um, Before leaving Japan, President Biden said he couldn't promise other world leaders that the U.S. would not default. He obviously um, then turned and blamed Republicans entirely. Take a listen. I can't guarantee that they wouldn't force a default by doing something outrageous. Now, from what you've seen from Republicans so far, uh, these work requirements uh, for able-bodied individuals with no dependents for social safety net programs, uh, clawing back unspent COVID relief funds, cap at previous year's levels. Would you describe those those demands as unreasonable? No, I mean, that's what you would expect from the Republican side of the Congress. So those are the kinds of things that they're focused on. And it's not at all surprising. I don't I don't I think there's there's got to be a compromise there, Jake. I mean, I don't think these are game-changing uh, kind of uh, uh, expectations by the Republicans, and I think the Democrats can, you know, uh, get them to move in certain respects so that this works for both of them, and we get a deal. Uh, you know, at the end of the day, all this stuff we're talking about now is small potatoes in comparison to if we uh, breach the debt limit and someone doesn't get paid on time, the costs in, uh, are enormous in the near term. We'll go into recession. Nobody wants that. Uh, it's going to make our fiscal situation even worse. And we're going to pay more uh, in interest going far because investors are going to say to themselves, look, you guys did it this time. What about next time and the time after? You've got to pay me a higher interest rate to compensate for that risk. So these things that we're debating and discussing, I can't. it, just, it would be uh, unimaginable to me that uh, Republicans and Democrats can't come together and find a compromise on them so that we don't go down that dark path. Yeah, I mean, I remember 12 years ago or whenever it was uh, as a White House correspondent, um, we're covering the fact that S&P uh, downgraded uh, the U.S. credit rating from AAA to, to, to AA. Um, could that happen again, you think? 
I, I, you know, I'm not, I don't speak for the agency uh, and, and uh, what they, and each agency is different. They each have their own methodologies. Uh, the, uh, the Moody's methodology, those uh, downgrade would only occur if the treasury missed a payment on the debt, on the bonds. And I think that is highly unlikely. Even if we breached, I, I suspect the treasury would prioritize those debt payments above everything else, at least for a while. So no, I, I think the bar for that is is very for a downgrade is is pretty high. It, you know, there will eventually be a downgrade if they think it's if there's a breach and it goes on for a while. It's hard to imagine there wouldn't be, but the bar here I think is is pretty high. Mark Zandi, thanks so much. Good to see you again. Coming up next, what Republican Tim Scott is up against as he enters the 2024 presidential race. Fellow South Carolina Republican Congresswoman Nancy Mace will be here. Plus, how a Republican mega donor is defending. His friendship and uh, gifts, his generous gifts to Clarence Thomas as lawmakers question those luxury trips and other presents to the Supreme Court justice and the real life panic today after a fake picture of the Pentagon popped up on social media. We'll show it to you. Senator Tim Scott of South Carolina officially announcing today he is running for the Republican presidential nomination. The only black Republican in the Senate, Scott has long and considered a rising star in the grand old party. His campaign already receiving a big boost today. Senator John Thune, the number two ranking Senate Republican, already announcing his support for Scott. As CNN's Eva McKen reports, even though Trump is the major hurdle that Senator Scott will need to overcome initially, today Scott focused his attacks on Democrats and the left. South Carolina Senator Tim Scott officially jumping into the 2024 presidential race. We live in the land where it is absolutely possible for a kid raised in poverty in a single parent household in a small apartment to one day serve in the people's house and maybe even the White House. The only black Republican in the Senate Scott emphasizing his personal story. I'm living proof that America is the land of opportunity and not a land of oppression. Scott pitching himself to Republican voters as a formidable challenger to President Joe Biden. Our nation, our values, and our people are strong, but our president is weak. And appealing directly to the GOP base on border security. If our southern border is unsafe and insecure, it's not our country. And over culture wars. I will be the president who destroys the liberal lie that America is an evil country. Among those introducing Scott, John Thune, the Senate's number two Republican, who is backing Scott's bid. Tim Scott is the real deal. Scott joins a growing field of GOP hopefuls. That's why I'm the candidate the far left fears the most. I disrupt their narrative. I threaten their control. The truth of my life disrupts their lies. Including former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley, who appointed Scott to the Senate in 2012, and former President Donald Trump, who congratulated Scott, writing... Tim is a big step up from Ron DeSanctimonious, who is totally unelectable. Choosing instead to go after Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, who is expected to announce his bid in the coming days. Our party and our nation are standing at a time for choosing. 
Scott striking a more optimistic message, setting up a contrast with Trump and DeSantis. Victimhood or victory? Grievance or greatness? I choose freedom and hope and opportunity. Will you choose it with me? Scott will continue his pitch to voters this week in Iowa and New Hampshire. Democrats already blasting his entry into the 2024 contest, saying that he supports policies like restrictive abortion access, arguing it's an extension of the MAGA agenda. Jake? Eva McCann did North Charleston, South Carolina for us. Thanks so much. Joining us now to discuss Republican Congresswoman Nancy Mesa, South Carolina. Congresswoman, thanks so much for joining you. You now have, well, we now have two high-profile South Carolinians running for the Republican nomination. Tim Scott joining former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley in the race today. Uh, Who's your favorite? Well, they're both residents of the Low Country in my district in South Carolina's first congressional district. Tim Scott is the eternal optimist, and I love his positive message. And Nikki Haley has always been a fighter who's never lost a campaign. And so as a, as a fellow South Carolinian, I stand very proud today to see both of my constituents in the race for president. It's an exciting time, an exciting day in South Carolina. I like how you refer to them as your constituents. I mean, I they know, are. I know, I know they are. It's wild, right? You know it's what so I mean. wild. Yeah, um, how do your constituents, uh, such as Governor Haley and Senator Scott, how, how can they get attention in a contest where, where we already are seeing the front runner, Donald Trump, dominate the race uh, to such a great extent, and, and he's so ahead in the polls? Right. Well, it's still very early on. We're, we haven't even gotten to summer yet, but I will tell you, Donald Trump is the man to beat in the Republican primary. Uh, and we saw the Durham report recently where we saw uh, folks of the administration really target him uh, with, without any evidence, for example. And you're going to see that, really see him rise because of the way that MAGA Republicans feel that he was targeted when he was president. That'll be a very hard thing to beat, but uh, you know, maybe there's opportunity for others in this race. Looks like we're going to have eight people, uh, a crowded field. Uh, we have Iowa and New Hampshire, but the first in the South race will be South Carolina. I would say all eyes on South Carolina because traditionally, whomever wins the South Carolina primary goes on to win the nomination. And uh, I think it's going to be an exciting race, and we'll see who else jumps in by the end of summer. So you have been a critic of Trump, but you've also said you're going to vote for whoever wins the Republican presidential mm-hmm. nomination. Um, would you rather vote for would you rather have someone other than Donald Trump? Would you rather have Nikki Haley or Tim Scott or Ron DeSantis? I would rather have someone other than Joe Biden. Look at what's going on with the debt ceiling today. He's finally coming back to the United States to sit down face to face with Kevin McCarthy. We're we're facing possible default and an eco, a huge economic crisis. And he was nowhere to be found this weekend. I want to make sure as someone who represents a very purple district, a bellwether state, a bellwether district, that uh, that we have a nominee and a vice presidential nominee that will represent and win the White House, keep the U.S. House in Republican hands, and maybe even flip the Senate. Because if you look at us economically and inflation, we've got to have someone who's fiscally conservative. We also need to have a nominee who can address abortion. That is the number two issue in purple states and in purple districts around the country. We've addressed it in our district, and I want to see the nominee also address it in the upcoming primary. I just I don't know that it's fair to say Joe Biden was nowhere to be found. He was at the G7 summit in Japan. He wasn't that, here in the U.S. negotiating a deal with Republicans. Okay, but I'm just saying he wasn't golfing is my only point. Yeah. But but let, let's talk about the negotiations over the, rate, the debt ceiling because we're just 10 days away 
from what economists say would be a catastrophic default as a member of Congress, as a Republican who is, you know, as with all the House Republicans, standing behind Kevin McCarthy, completely unified as of right now. Can you guarantee the U.S. will not default on its debt obligation? We don't have to default unless the president wants us to. We can prioritize spending on June 1st to pay the interest on the debt. In terms of tax revenues, we get 11 times the interest on the debt annually. There's no reason to default, but that does mean that we can't pay all of our bills in time. What I think what you've seen in some of the recent polling with the Associated Press and others, 63% of Americans want U.S. Congress and the president to address our deficit, to reduce our deficit. I'm advocating for no new taxes. I'm advocating to freeze spending. I'm also, I also believe we need to have work requirements. And for the 52% of federal employees who aren't showing up to work, maybe those are the first ones who should get fired if they're not doing their job because the average American has to go to work to get, to get their paycheck every week, but some in the federal government don't have to, and that's not fair. So you are in favor of work requirements. This is one mm-hmm. of the sticking points uh, for individuals uh, receiving uh, some of these social safety net programs. My understanding from what uh, Speaker McCarthy just told Manu Raju in the exact spot where you're standing about an hour or so ago is that this, is, this, would, this would apply just to able-bodied individuals, recipients who do not have dependents. Is that right? That's what my understanding is as well. And look, the, the president, Joe Biden, he supported work requirements in past years. So I don't understand why it's so controversial today. And again, Jake, you know we have a divided Congress. We ought to be working together on this issue. Uh, both parties, Republicans and Democrats alike, created the deficit that we have today. Both parties need to sit down and fix it. Republican Congresswoman Nancy Mace of South Carolina, thanks so much for your time. Appreciate it. Thanks, Jake. Coming up next, the day in court today for the man accused of killing four Idaho college students, plus efforts to challenge the judge's order and make more information public in the case. In our national lead, standing silent, the man accused of murdering four University of Idaho students last fall refusing to enter a plea in court today, so the judge did it for him, entering pleas of not guilty. CNN's Veronica Miracle reports on this uncommon move, standing silent, and whether prosecutors will ultimately pursue the death penalty in this case. The suspect in the brutal stabbings of Ford University of Idaho students walking in without handcuffs into an Idaho courtroom Monday. All rise. And in a highly unusual move, remained silent when asked for his plea to one burglary charge and four counts of first-degree murder. The judge entered not guilty pleas for each charge. Brian Koberger, looking only at his attorney and the judge during the proceedings, did respond to questions. Do you understand these rights? Yes. Any questions about the rights? No. Koberger appeared to read the indictment as the judge in this case read the charges. Count four, murder in the first degree. He's charged in the November killings of Ethan Chapin, Zana Kernodal, Madison Mogan, and Kaylee Gonsalves. Koberger affirming that he understood the charges against him, did not appear to react with any emotion. Do you understand the charge in count five, murder yes. in the first degree? Or appear to look around the courtroom where victims' families, like the Gonsalveses, remained fixed on him during the proceedings. 
Koberger has been in custody since December after he was arrested at his parents' Pennsylvania home more than a month after the murders. He was tracked down after police zeroed in on a white Hyundai Elantra spotted near the crime scene and a description of the intruder by a surviving roommate identified as DM who said she heard crying and saw a masked man that night clad in black clothing and noting his height, weight and bushy eyebrows according to the probable cause affidavit. Investigators say they found Koberger's father's DNA on trash recovered from his family's home, which was a close match to the DNA on a tan leather knife sheath left behind at the crime scene, according to the affidavit. Now the prosecution has 60 days to decide whether they will pursue the death penalty in this case. And Jake, there were also two separate hearings today discussing the gag order. A judge put a gag order in place which says that attorneys representing people involved in the case as well as the prosecution and the police, they cannot publicly comment. A media coalition wants this completely vacated. And the Gonsalves family, one of the victims' families, wants this amended. So they want to be able to talk about it. The media wants to be able to get more information. Uh, the judge says he's going to be hearing these cases in, in a motion on uh, June 9th. And it's at that time that he is also going to be reviewing and deciding whether cameras should be allowed in court during trial. Jake. All right, Veronica Miracle, thanks so much. Wednesday will mark one year since the second deadliest school shooting in the history of the United States when the lives of 19 fourth graders and two teachers were stolen by a gunman at Robb Elementary School in Uvalde, Texas. And one unanswered question still remains, why? Why did police wait for 77 minutes to enter that classroom and take down the shooter. CNN's Shimon Prokopez has been covering the story since the beginning, and he sat down with families whose lives have forever been changed for the worst. For the past year, these parents have been asking officials for answers and not getting them. Those families knew CNN was able to obtain the footage of what happened that day through sources, and in many cases, they asked Shimon and CNN to show them the moments that their children were evacuated from the classrooms after the gunman had been taken down. They said they needed to see what their children experienced. They hoped it would help them and help others understand what this kind of violence does to children. I want to warn you, what we're about to show you, you might find upsetting and disturbing. Those are the ones who survived. And Shimon joins us now. Shimon, 
What was it like showing these families this footage that they've been begging to see that the officials won't let them that they've never seen before? It was, you know, one of the toughest things I probably have ever had to do, um, certainly as a journalist, to sit there and have to show this to these families. They asked for it. Uh, you know, I hesitated to do it, Jake, but eventually, you know, their persistence and in them wanting to see this, they felt it was important, as you said, so they could know what their kids went through. But we also showed video to another mother of her daughter of when she was rescued. This is uh, Jamie Torres is the mother. She asked to see the moment her daughter was rescued. Her daughter called 911. And what you'll see in the video is that she's covered in blood. But just keep in mind, this is not her blood, Jake. Uh, This is the blood of other students and other victims. She used that blood so that the shooter could think that she was dead. Uh, Take a listen. That was her. So that was Chloe. Did you see her? Did you recognize her? She also wanted to watch video of her daughter and other children placed on a school bus and taken to the hospital. The video is disturbing. Chloe wasn't physically hurt during the attack. And remember, the blood you're about to see is not hers. Stop, let me know, okay? Are you okay or you want me to stop? Hmm? Are you okay or you want me to stop? You okay? Hey, you're gonna go home to your mom's and dad's, okay? No, I can't go home to my mom's and dad's. What's your name? Okay, no, we can go home to your dad, okay? And then, Jake, of course, it's just incredibly difficult to watch and to see that. But again, this is something the families really wanted people to see. For Chloe Torres, the little girl, and life is, you know, pretty difficult now. She has pretty, uh, suffers from PTSD. She's afraid to go into confined spaces. But, you know, the families are doing it. They're doing as as best as they can and what they can do to try and help her, Jake. Yeah, it's so important what you what you do. It really is accountability journalism and service journalism in such an important way, Shimon. Um, Earlier today, uh, Uvalde officials held a news conference. Um, This is Uh, Not because of your special last night on CNN, but but because of the uh, upcoming one-year anniversary of the school shooting. Uh, Did anything constructive come out of that? No, and and that's the problem. I mean, family members were there, reporters were there, the mayor spoke, other officials spoke. The thing is, the mayor is even frustrated. He said, look, I know everyone wants answers. I can't give you the answers because I don't have the information. We at CNN have more information than he does. In fact, many times when we've brought information to him, he's taken some kind of action. Uh, And so he's frustrated by that. He's saying, we are at this year now, and yet still I am fighting to get information so that I can make changes here on the local level at the police department and with other city officials. Uh, Because he does. He does believe that he's going to have to make changes, and certainly he's going to have to fire some officers. Shimon Brokopas, thank you so much. Friends can talk about business, but when does it cross a line? What Republican megadonor Harlan Crow is now saying about his friendship with Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas. Stay with us. In our politics lead, a Republican megadonor is defending his friendship with Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas. In a new interview with The Atlantic magazine, Harlan Crow says he and Justice Thomas talk about life. They listen to Motown. And sure, they kibitz a bit about work, but with Supreme Court friendship comes supreme 
accountability. And Crow's motives have been under scrutiny after reports revealed he has funded luxury travel for Thomas and his wife and bought the home of Thomas's mother in a private real estate deal and more. CNN's Ariane DeVoe joins us now. So Ariane, uh, Crow was asked if he ever talks specifically about Supreme Court cases with Justice Thomas. What's the answer? Right. This is his most extensive interview so far. And he even said he hopes it's his last. But he does address this. He addresses those luxury trips on the um, planes and on the yachts. And he basically said in the article, it's not realistic for two people to be friends and not talk about their jobs from time to time. He said, for instance, Thomas would talk about his fondness for his clerks, the time that he bumped into Justice Breyer at a Target store. But he draws the line about talking about cases. He said it would be wrong for talk about court cases. From my point of view, this is off limits. He and I don't go there. And then he also brought up those real estate deals. Remember, he did a deal with Thomas. He bought the house where Thomas' mother still lives, says one day he wants to turn it into a museum. And in this article, he says he's totally baffled by the criticism on this. He said it was a fair market transaction and I had a purpose. I don't see the footfault here. And, of course, it comes now as Congress is beginning to look into uh, and ask more questions of Crow, of Thomas, of the court in general. Right. The Senate Judiciary Committee, which is controlled by Democrats, they're they're not going to take him at his word, Harlan Crow. Right. They have asked Crow's lawyers for details about this with tax implications. So far, he has said he is not going to answer that. That's a separation of powers issue. He doesn't he's not going to do it. And Congress is exceeding its authority in making those requests. All right. Ariane DeVoe, thanks so much. The dangerous side of AI. See the fake picture of the Pentagon today, or that people thought was the Pentagon, that caused a scare. Just in on our tech league, TikTok is suing the state of Montana over the recently passed law that bans TikTok, a popular app in the state, which starts early next year. TikTok claims that the law violates the U.S. Constitution, including the First Amendment protection of speech. The company also alleges that concerns that the Chinese government could access the data of TikTok users are, quote, unfounded. Now, the law signed by the state's governor last week would impose a $10,000 a day fine on TikTok or app stores for making the app available in Montana starting on January 1st. Staying in our tech lead, an image of an explosion at the Pentagon today, found its way onto international news networks and caused the stock market to dip. There was no explosion at the Pentagon, however. The image, we're going to show it to you, it's fake. That's why we put AI-generated fake image there. Artificial intelligence appears to be the culprit. CNN's Donny O'Sullivan is with us now. And Donny, where did this fake image come from and, and how did this information, misinformation, spread so quickly? Yeah, Jake, there's two real parts to this, right? There's first is Elon Musk's Twitter. Um, A lot of your viewers might remember the whole saga about the blue check marks on Twitter, the verified check marks. Musk has basically taken all of those away uh, and is is selling them now to people who uh, want to get a blue check mark. So whereas before, if you had a blue tick on Twitter, it meant that Twitter had verified you are the person or the organization you're claiming to be. That's not really the case. Uh, So what happened this morning was somebody posted uh, using an account that they claimed uh, was linked to the Bloomberg News organization, uh, posting that AI generated 
AI-generated image and claiming there had been some kind of explosion um, at the Pentagon. Uh, that then got shared across multiple other verified accounts. We saw it on other platforms, too. It looked quite coordinated, uh, but we don't know right now who, who pushed this. Um, then there's the AI side of this. So uh, multiple experts we've spoken to and, and others who have observed this online say that that is uh, an image generated by artificial intelligence. And you can see there, uh, particularly people who are familiar with Washington, that the building uh, in, in the picture is not the Pentagon. But, you know, it just goes to show even with a crude fake like this uh, and some verified accounts on Twitter um, that, you know, you could still cause a lot of trouble for stock market to dip and, and to trick some news organizations. Yeah, look, I mean, we're in a whole new world here. Um, we see artificial intelligence being used to create misinformation. We're going to see much, much more. And, and the big fear, what kind of role could that play in the upcoming election? Yeah, I mean, it, it certainly could supercharge uh, the misinformation environment, right? I mean, especially we've seen some extremely realistic uh, AI-generated images uh, of people like Trump and Ron DeSantis, uh, and also, of course, fake audio. I mean, you think back through history, the role uh, that audio has played in, in election campaigns, uh, a leaked tape, as it were, the Access Hollywood tape, that could very now easily be faked. Uh, but also on the flip side of that, if a real tape were to emerge, um, you know, a candidate could claim, I never said that. That's a fake. So uh, we are, we're living in the dystopia. All right, Donia Sullivan, thanks so much. Just into CNN, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen checking the math on her estimate for the U.S. hitting a default by June 1st. In a letter today to House Speaker Kevin McCarthy and other congressional leaders, Yellen writes, quote, with an additional week of information now available, I am writing to note that we estimate that it is highly likely that Treasury will no longer be able to satisfy all of the government's obligations if Congress has not acted to raise or suspend the debt limit by early June and potentially as early as June 1st, end quote. Speaker McCarthy, President Biden are set to meet at the White House on debt limit negotiations in roughly 30 minutes. So we expect them to speak at the beginning of that meeting and at the end, perhaps, as well. We're going to keep you posted on any headlines. Also, just into CNN, the written notes taken by a Trump attorney that revealed the former president's efforts to push back on a Justice Department subpoena into its classified documents case. Our justice team is confirming this now. We're going to have more on the other side of this break. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. This hour, a high school graduation in Mississippi is making national headlines for uh, authorities there refusing to allow a trans girl student to wear a dress under her graduation gown. And now another student has been punished as well. Plus... We are just 30 minutes away from a key meeting between President Biden and House Speaker Kevin McCarthy in an effort to avert what could be financial catastrophe for the United States if a deal is not reached in the next 10 days. And leading this hour, notes from Donald Trump's lawyer show that the former president wanted to fight the federal subpoena demanding that he return classified documents from his time in office. That's according to sources familiar with the notes taken by Trump lawyer Evan Corcoran, which have now been turned over to special counsel Jack Smith. The notes are allegedly about conversations between Trump and his legal team after they received the subpoena last May, but before a key meeting between Trump's team and the Justice Department, where Trump's attorneys say they had handed over the classified documents, all of them. CNN's Paula Reed is here now. Paula, walk us through what these notes reportedly say. Well, Jake, the team and I have learned that these notes will reveal the conversations that the former president had with his then-attorney, Evan Corcoran, after they received a subpoena from the Justice Department demanding that he return any classified documents in his possession. 
Now, we've learned that during these conversations, he wanted to know what they could do to push back on this. Uh, How would they fight? What were their options? Now, some people have said these are significant because, of course, the special counsel is looking into possible obstruction of justice. But some other sources have pointed out, look, these are reasonable questions to ask your attorney when you receive a subpoena. But it is extraordinary that we even have access uh, to these kinds of details. And the special counsel has this information because he went to court and he fought to get around attorney-client privilege. He argued that this legal advice may have been used in furtherance of a crime. He argued that successfully, which is how he got this evidence. It's extraordinary, though, because usually conversations between a lawyer and the client are completely considered privileged and walled off. Um, I mean, Donald Trump's not above law, but he's also not below the law. Uh, exactly. what, what do you make of this decision? Again, they went to court to fight. Special counsel Jack Smith has been extremely aggressive in trying to get around, of course, executive privilege, attorney-client privilege. There are certain pieces of information that he believes he needs in order to answer these questions about whether classified documents were mishandled and whether there were any efforts to obstruct. So he went through the proper channels to get around attorney-client privilege. But to your point, that privilege exists for a reason, because you want to be able to speak freely to your attorney uh, about your options, express frustration, a bat around some ideas without it coming back to potentially bite you. Very interesting. As Paul, stick around. I want to bring in Tom Dupree, a former principal deputy assistant attorney general and partner at Gibson, Dunn and Crutcher. So uh, what do you what do you make of the contents? Obviously, it's extraordinary that this was allowed to 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 be uh, revealed. But what do you make of the contents? In some respects, it's not surprising at all. In other respects, it's very surprising. The way it's not surprising is that the president wanted to fight the subpoena. That's what we've seen. His lawyers often, over the course of his time in office, would urge cooperation with the Justice Department or other investigators. That's not his nature. His nature is to fight. Doesn't surprise me. That was his first question. What can we do to battle this? The thing that does surprise me, though, is that apparently from this great reporting is that we're starting to hear that he may have had much greater involvement in the subpoena response than we knew previously in terms of instruction people to remove documents in terms of the logistics about how are we going to prepare the documents for the Justice Department. I think that is in particular what the special counsel is after. He wants to prove President Trump's intent. He wants to prove President Trump's mindset. He wants to prove that President Trump obstructed the Justice Department's investigation. How, How damaging do you think it is? We don't know the full extent of what is in these notes. At this point, you can see why the special counsel wants to know, you know, how did they respond to the subpoena? Because they've been trying to get a lot of these documents back for quite some time. We know they had concerns about whether things were being moved. We also know Walt Nada, sort of a lower level aide who serves as a valet, is mentioned in these notes. And he's significant because he is caught on surveillance footage moving some boxes out of a storage room, the same storage room that Evan Corcoran had gone in to look for classified materials and not found everything that was at at the premises. So I do think it's clear why the special counsel would want to see these notes, why they could be important, but it's too early to judge because we don't have all of the notes or all of the evidence to know if this is truly incriminating. Obviously, just this is speculation, but based on what we do know, how could these notes be used to make a potential case against Trump by Jack Smith? If I were the special counsel, I would say that this shows President Trump, number one, knew that he had a legal obligation to return these documents. Number two, he knew that there was classified information stored within those documents. And number three, he instructed his agents to basically remove the documents, otherwise make them inaccessible to the search. That's how I would use this if there were the special counsel. The special counsel, as you said, has been very aggressive in piercing the privilege. He's been cutting through the privilege like a scythe through a wheat field. Every time the president and asserts privilege, it seems like it gets overruled. Absolutely extraordinary, but that's how the special counsel is gathering evidence and making his case. And Paula, there's also a lot of drama inside of Donald Trump's legal team. Um, I guess that's as is 
par for the course with Mr. Standard, Trump. Yes. Yeah. Um, former Trump attorney Timothy Parlatori left the team last week and he talked to you about it and why he left. He said it wasn't because of the case itself or Trump. Uh, let me play part of that exchange. The real reason is because there are certain individuals that made defending the president much harder than it needed to be. Uh, in particular, there's one individual who works for him, uh, Boris Epstein, who had really done everything he could to try to block us, to prevent us from doing what we could uh, to, to defend the president. So Parlatori is claiming that Epstein uh, kept the rest of the legal team from doing their jobs. H- how? Well, quite remarkably, he said that he prevented them from wanting to from being able to do the searches for additional classified documents that they wanted to do after the search warrant was executed at Mar-a-Lago. That is an extraordinary accusation to make about another lawyer. I mean, he walked right up to the line of accusing him of obstruction. And again, that's one of the things the special counsel is looking at. Did anyone try to obstruct this investigation? Now, I will note a spokesman for the former president uh, responded to that interview and said that, look, Tim's no longer on the legal team. And what he said about the lawyers currently representing the former president, that is untrue. But look, like you said, we're used to infighting in Trump legal circles. That's nothing new. But something like this spilling out into public view, a lot of questions about whether the former president will be listening, if he'll change his approach. And of course, we do think the special counsel will likely take note of this. This is it's it's odd uh, and it's unusual. Um, Parlatori not only leaving the team, but but I mean, no offense. It was a great interview. Congratulations. Big scoop. But giving the interview and naming names. I, it, it, it shocked me, Jake. Honestly, it shocked me. I mean, lawyers just don't do that sort of thing. And I guess what's particularly remarkable about this whole thing is that so much of the evidence the special counsel is gathering to use against the former president comes from his former lawyers. Yeah. In other words, he's getting notes. He's getting their legal advice. They're saying things on TV. The special counsel is out there gathering it all. Normally, your lawyers are a bulwark, a shield to protect you from legal liability. In this case, they're the ones generating the evidence that's going to be used against President Trump. Yeah, that's a lot. I mean, if what he's saying is true, that's a lot of power for Boris Epstein, who, let's be frank, he's not exactly F. Lee Bailey. Um, <laughs> Paul, it does appear like the special counsel is nearing the end of his investigation uh, into the claiming of the classified documents. Yeah. Um, given what we now know about his legal team, what sort of defense strategy do you think we will see? So this was part of the disagreement within the legal team is how aggressive should they be behind the scenes in pushing back directly on the special counsel and prosecutors? And how aggressive should they be in the court of public opinion? But the big question I have right now in terms of where are we is what's up with Mark Meadows, right? He is the most important witness potentially for the January 6th investigation, possibly useful in Mar-a-Lago as well. Radio silence from him. No communication between his legal team and the former president's team. So a lot of questions about the extent to which he is cooperating, when and if he will testify. And really, once we see him, then we'll know that the evidence gathering phase is concluded which we think they're pretty close to the end. But big question about Mark Meadows. Then they'll write the report, and we'll see if he brings any charges. Fascinating, fascinating. Paula Reed, Tom Dupree, thanks to both. You really appreciate it. Turning to our world lead now, after weeks of a brutal and deadly assault, the Russian mercenary group Wagner claims it has captured the eastern Ukrainian city of Bakhmut. Wagner posted a video of its soldiers holding up the Russian flag and claiming that they had captured the town after 224 days of brutal fighting. Now, the leaders of Ukraine deny this. They say Ukrainian forces are still in control of buildings flanking Bakhmut. CNN's Nick Robertson is in eastern Ukraine for us. And and, and Nick, you're you're near the front lines. Is this potential defeat problematic for Ukraine in the long run? 
Yes, it is. Uh, it's a morale issue. It's a morale issue for them and for the Russians. The Russians gain something. Uh, this is a tough war for the Ukrainians. They've lost this. Uh, it makes many soldiers question their political leaders. Did they make the right decision? Lose so many soldiers. The canon narrative is um, it sucked up uh, and, and killed a lot of Russian troops. But if Russia pushes through Bakhmut and comes over the hill and through the countryside beyond, it moves on to the next towns. And there's no doubting that that's their targets. We were along the front lines that are very, very close to Bakhmut. Um, and you get the real sense from soldiers there that this war just is giving them a kicking. Barely out of the armoured troop carrier. Incoming artillery. We're just going to wait in this little basement until the shelling's over. Then they think it'll be safe to move forward to the front positions. A few minutes later, safe to come out at this army outpost a few miles from Bakhmut. Last night was hard, a lot of shelling. Callsign Gambit tells us the soldier is still shell-shocked from an anti-tank rocket attack. We're going to get back in the vehicle, try to get a little closer to the front lines. Ten days ago, these troops pushed the Russians back around Bakhmut, but their advance is slowing and harder. We get to a small HQ. Callsign Fox, a former farmer, is readying his troops for their coming shift on the front line, stopping the Russians in Bakhmut from advancing. How hard is that? It's impossible to describe these feelings, he says. You can only experience it. No words can express it. They shell a lot. As we talk, it is clear this war is taking its toll. You only have to look at the soldiers' faces here to know how tough this battle is. They all look worn. They say morale's high. But their faces are telling a different story. We move on towards other positions and stop as the shelling increases. We've just been told the place that we were going to is under heavy shelling, so we're going to pull back from here, go somewhere else. In the battalion bunker, the commander tells us the Russians have ramped up their shelling on his troops since they advanced. Tons of ammo, shrapnel, tanks firing, everything. His unit's drones recorded their recent successes, but now the Russians have regrouped and in a moment of candour following losses the previous night, admits morale is flagging. Let's be honest, he says, we are fighting heavily for more than a year. My soldiers went through many battles and two rotations near Bakhmut. Troops are exhausted, but we endure. Bakhmut, which is just over the hill in that direction, has become an object lesson in how Russia's wealth in men and ammunition can prevail. And that unless Ukraine gets the modern weaponry support from its allies, it's going to struggle to tip the balance. Call sign Fox and his unit load up for their hard miles at the front. An end of war, getting back to their families what drives them into the shelling.
And uh, in another bizarre development, some separatist Russian forces who are allied with Ukraine have crossed the border and actually invaded Russia? Yeah, look, what the troops are doing in and around Bakhmut and in other places along the front line is to try to find a weakness in the Russian lines to force the Russians to pull more resources, more troops in from one area to another. And that's happened around Bakhmut. And I think what we're witnessing at the border there, I mean, how bizarre that Ukrainian, essentially Ukrainian allied forces can drive across the border into Russia. Russia is at war with Ukraine. Okay, they call it a special military operation. But how can the border be so weak? A handful of uh, Ukrainian armored vehicles can drive across the border, create havoc in a town, cause injuries, apparently take prisoners, put the governor there, or the local mayor at least, on the back foot under assault from citizens who are saying you're not doing enough to protect us. What is it actually designed to do? It appears as if the Ukrainians are trying to force the Russians to redeploy troops out of the fight in Ukraine to get along the border and defend these many, many hundreds of small border crossings that apparently they're not defending. I think that's Ukraine's ploy right now because it wants to create weaknesses so it can get through with a big counteroffensive. And this is one way to try to do it. Nick Robertson, please stay safe in eastern Ukraine. Appreciate it. Also in our world lead, the sister of Paul Whelan is going to join me live. Her brother just spoke with CNN's Jennifer Hansler, an exclusive interview from the Russian prison camp where he is being wrongfully detained, plus a potential solution in an enormous water fight impacting 40 million Americans. Then we're talking to R.K. Russell about his time in the NFL and being the first openly bisexual active player on an NFL roster. Stay with us. And we're back with more in our world lead, a surprisingly upbeat conversation with Paul Whelan, one of the Americans wrongfully detained in Russia. Whelan, a former U.S. Marine who has U.S., Irish, British and Canadian citizenship, was detained at a Moscow hotel in December 2018. He was sentenced to 16 years in prison on an espionage, espionage charge that he vehemently denies. In an exclusive conversation with CNN's Elizabeth Hansler, uh, Whelan says he feels, I'm sorry, Jennifer Hansler, Whelan says that he feels confident that his case is a priority for the government, but he wishes it could be resolved faster. Well, you know, I've got the usual aches and pains of forced labor and, and poor living conditions, and that's a daily reminder of where I am and how long I've been here and the need for um, our government to get me home. So I remain positive and confident on a daily basis that, um, you know, the wheels are turning. I just wish they would turn a little bit more quickly. While Whelan talking to Jennifer Hansler, I'm joined now by Paul Whelan's sister, Elizabeth. Elizabeth, thank you so, so much for joining us. So how long has it been since you've heard from your brother? And, and what do you think of, of what he said uh, to CNN? Well, Paul can talk to my parents relatively um, uh, frequently. Um, I, we were thrilled that he was able to talk to Jennifer Hansler. Um, I'm amazed at his resilience. And he has to bring that courage every single day. Uh, he has to wake up every day remembering that he is in IK-17, the forced labor camp, and to, and to get that back. It's amazing that after four years and five months, he is still able to do that. And I hope the U.S. government um, has a response for the Russians that is worthy of that kind of faith. Your brother, of course, um, was left behind when Russia freed Brittany Griner last December. And since then, the Russians detained another American. The Wall Street Journal's Evan Gershkovich. I, I want to play you something else that your brother 
uh, told us last night. I have been told that I won't be left behind, and I have been told that although Evan's case is a priority, mine is also a priority, and people are cognizant of the fact that um, this is having an extremely negative impact on me and my family. Are you confident that Paul's case is a top priority for the U.S. government, for the Biden administration? Yeah, I am. Um, And what I need to know, what I need to have confidence in is that that we're moving forward with alacrity. You know, this is taking a very long time. I realize this administration inherited this particular problem. Um, That's why we're you know, almost four and a half years into it. But we need to know that uh, there's a current very good plan and that there's an exceptionally strong backup plan if this doesn't work. Um, Paul has been waiting too long to come home. And there is absolutely no reason Paul should not be on the next plane out of Russia back to Michigan. Last month, you spoke at the United Nations and you attended a Security Council meeting chaired by Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov. It turns out your brother was watching. Here is what he told us last night. It was funny because we stood here um, in the prison watching the TV. I'm watching my sister speak at the U.N. And everyone was mesmerized that this sort of thing could happen. And I said, you know, in America, in in Canada, uh, England, Ireland, this is the sort of thing that we do. We have the freedom to speak out and to speak at a place like the U.N. What's your reaction hearing that? Uh, We were amazed that he could see that he could view that. That was just incredible. And I hope it gave him uh, some fortitude, some confidence that we're doing everything that we can. And now we need to press Russia. That's the important part. I do believe our administration is doing all sorts of things they can to try to get Paul home. But we have to push Russia. The security services are obviously in some kind of chaos right now. Uh, This is all taking too long and we can't allow the Kremlin to continue to have the upper hand in these cases where they're detaining Americans wrongfully. Listen to your brother's message for President Biden. Mr. President, I've been held hostage for more than 52 months and the only crime I have committed in Russia is that of being an American citizen. Freedom is not free and comes at a price, but the loss of freedom is even more costly, and I pay that cost every day Russia holds me. Please follow through with your promises and commitments. Truly make my life a priority and get me home. Thank you very much. Anything you want to add? Oh, I just... You know, that's heartbreaking, isn't it, to hear something like that? Um, And you just hope that all of the people who are working on Paul's case, uh, you know, those who are having three meals a day, sleeping in a comfortable bed, you know, realize what he has gone through for four and a half years and do what's needed to get Paul home. Elizabeth Whelan, thank you so much. And obviously, we're going to continue to cover your brother's story. Thank you very much. It is the meeting that could avoid financial ruin for the United States. In just minutes, President Biden and House Speaker McCarthy will try to reach a deal at the White House when they meet. Stay with us. And we're back with our money lead in just a few minutes. President Biden and House Speaker Kevin McCarthy will resume negotiations over the debt ceiling. The two of them meeting at the White House with just 10 days to go before the U.S. defaults on its debt, according to the Treasury Secretary. Earlier today, McCarthy sounded the alarm to CNN about the looming crisis, telling Manu Raju that a deal will have to be agreed to this week in order for the legislation to be drafted and for the bill to pass the Senate and the president to sign the bill before the June 1st deadline. CNN's Jeremy Diamond joins us now live from the White House. Jeremy, what what do we know about the remaining sticking points in the negotiations? 
Well, Jake, with just 10 days to go until potential default, we're not just talking about a few sticking points, but really most major areas of this negotiation remain unresolved. We're looking at the issue of spending caps, for example, for how long would those spending caps last? At what level would they be? What's the breakdown between defense and non-defense spending? And then, of course, there are all of these other policy issues that they're trying to work through in terms of work requirements for social safety net programs, permitting reform. But one thing is that you do get a sense of, uh, and I, I've gotten a sense in talking to folks here, is that today's meeting between President Biden and the Speaker Kevin McCarthy could be a potential inflection point, in particular after we saw sputtering talks over uh, this past weekend with talks starting and stopping. Uh, today, though, President Biden and Speaker McCarthy will get together and they will be together in the room with just their teams. The other congressional leaders who have previously been in these meetings will not be there. And I'm told that that's a reflection of the state of these negotiations and ultimately the fact that this is a deal that's going to need to come down to President Biden and Speaker McCarthy, with both of them needing to deliver votes uh, from their respective caucuses. And the Secretary of the Treasury, Jenny Yellen, just sent a new letter to Speaker McCarthy with an update on the timeline here. What did she have to say? Yeah, that's right, Jake. She is reiterating the fact that this uh, potential default will come as early as June, potentially as early as June 1st. She says in a letter to the congressional leaders, quote, we estimate that it is highly likely that Treasury will no longer be able to satisfy all of the government's obligations if Congress has not acted to raise or suspend the debt limit by early June and potentially as early as June 1. And you hear there, she says, highly likely. That is increased confidence from last week when she sent a similar letter where she simply said, that it was likely they would hit that timeline. So a, a ramped up warning there from the Treasury Secretary. Jake. All right, Jeremy Diamond at the White House for us. Thanks so much. Let's discuss this with former Democratic South Carolina State Representative Bakari Sellers, along with former Trump campaign advisor uh, David Urban. Bakari, what do you think? Is the U.S., do you think, ultimately headed towards a default? I don't think so. I honestly think that Joe Biden is someone who's made deals, bipartisan deals, whether or not it's, it's uh, the infrastructure bill or COVID relief. He's been able to go in when times get tough um, and be able to pull people together. I anticipate he'll be able to do that again. That's one of his major selling points during this time of partisanship. He's actually somebody who uses his 40 plus odd years of experience in getting things done. He knows he's going to have to give a little bit. I'm interested to see what uh, Speaker McCarthy can do rounding up his troops in the House. I think it's more than 40 years. I think it's closer, <laughs> closer to 50. No, no, no offense. Uh, um, uh, David, uh, let, let's uh, turn it. I was off by a decade. I'm sorry. <laughs> he's not a soft boy. You're young. He's trying, to, he's trying to undersell it. You're young. I get it. Uh, David, uh, Senator Tim Scott of South Carolina, he's now yeah. officially a presidential candidate. Let's play a little bit of what he said earlier today. I'm living proof that America is the land of opportunity and not a land of oppression. This isn't just my story, it's all of our stories. The circumstances and the situations may be different. The details may change, but every single one of us are here because of the American journey, where there were obstacles that became opportunities. Uh, Scott is often described as being a happy warrior, more in the, in the mo model of, uh, of Ronald Reagan uh, than perhaps uh, Donald Trump. Do you think that sort of messaging, that <laughs> message works in today's GOP? Yeah, I, I sure hope so. I watched that, I watched his announcement today and, and he's a spectacular order. It uh, felt like you're in church listening to it. I know Bakari was probably saying, can I get, can I get an amen, Bakari, right? I mean, he's, uh, he's, very, he's very good at what he does. 
Um, and, and look, he, his message from the beginning, he said, look, I like to think, I like to look forward out of the windshield, not uh, backwards out of the rearview mirror. And I think that's the, you know, what he projected today. And I think uh, uh, not just the Republican voters, but Americans would love to hear that kind of talk from all their politicians, right? And, and by doing so, I think he's kind of taking not so subtle swipe at uh, the former president and, and, and others who want to look backwards. He, he said, look, this is about looking forward. I think the message that Americans want to hear of not the bad situation we're in now, not about being victims, like he said, but about victory moving forward. So, Bakari, obviously you've known uh, Tim Scott for a long time, a fellow South Carolinian. Uh, Senator Scott went on the offensive against Biden and Democrats uh, at times during this address. Let's run a little bit of that. When I cut your taxes, they called me a prop. When I refunded the police, they called me a token. When I pushed back on President Biden, they even called me the N-word. I disrupt their narrative. I threaten their control. The truth of my life disrupts their lies. I'm the candidate the far left fears the most. What do you make of that? And do you think uh, that Democrats actually fear him the most getting the nomination? No, Democrats actually fear somebody who can win the primary. But let me let me say this. Tim Scott is the most principled politician we have on uh, the, the, the playing field out there. Joe Biden as well. But I want to I want to talk about Tim for this moment because today is his day. He's somebody of a very, very high character. And I say that with all the honesty that I have. We disagree on policy. In fact, I think that Tim was flat out wrong in many of those statements he made. Tim's story is a phenomenal story. And he talks about this being the land of opportunity. But in that same story, he acknowledges that he himself is a miracle. So this isn't the land of milk and honey and opportunity for us all, because he himself had to be a miracle to get to where he is today because of the color of his skin. I also think that Tim brings up a unique point that we're going to have to talk about. Tim actually goes out and he acknowledges the fact, I believe, that most African-Americans are conservative, particularly in the South. They, they sway or have a conservative bent. The difference, though, with black Republicans is that they don't stand up to the truth of white supremacy and racism in this country. And Tim Scott refused to do that, too. I think he's a very honorable man. I think that he has the characteristics of looking forward. However, I think this this campaign is going to prove to be tough because this uh, Republican Party is the Republican Party of Donald Trump. And there's a currency of racism, whether or not they want to admit that or not. I don't know how he navigates that. And David, um, Senator Scott has, has right now little name. It's early, yes, but he has little name recognition. He's polling in the low single digits. He does have some money. Um, for that reason, some have speculated that maybe he's really running for vice president more than president. Um, the Messenger, dug, which is a, right. new, a new publication, they dug up a 1995 interview with a then 30-year-old Scott in which he was asked about one day running for the White House. And this is what, how he replied back then. He said, quote, I thought about that, but as vice president, you get to speak more and have a forum to deliver messages, unquote. Now, that's 1995. But what do you think? Do you, do you think yeah. he's, he's really running for the whole thing? L- listen, I'm, I'm sure that, uh, oh, I shouldn't say this. I'm sure he's shooting for the top t- top of the ticket. I don't think anybody gets in the race and says, I w- I'm running for vice president. But I think that, um, in my opinion, I think he'd probably be happy with accepting the vice presidency, knowing that Donald Trump's only going to serve one term and he'd be likely teed up to be the next president of the United States. So, uh, you know, he's going to introduce himself to America in these coming weeks. I think he's going to do very, very well. 
Um, you know, he's going to uh, if I was uh, both President Trump and Tim Scott and others, I would use the, the Biden and don't compare me to the almighty can compare me to the alternative. AP Nork poll out just recently has Biden at a woeful 33 percent and on the economy, 24 percent on Americans thinking that uh, American, uh, the economy is in a great shape is his favorability is about 40 percent. So, you know, the, the, the sitting president and the sitting vice president are in pretty bad shape. And I think that uh, Tim Scott will provide a nice contrast to those uh, folks in the White House right now. And, and Bakari, Donald Trump uh, went on uh, his uh, social media account, uh, Truth Social, and, and wished uh, Tim Scott the best. Uh, he attacked Ron DeSantis in the process, writing in part, quote, uh, Tim is a big step up from Ron DeSanctimonious, who is totally unelectable. Um, that, that does seem as though that's a pretty clear sign that he views DeSantis, not Tim Scott, as a threat, at least right now. I mean, I think so. But I think it also goes to the character and who people know Tim Scott to be. Um, Look, Tim Scott is not going to get in the mud with Donald Trump. We have a saying in South Carolina that you get in the mud with pigs. Everybody gets dirty, but the pig likes it. Right. And so he's not going to roll around and, and get dirty with Donald Trump. I don't think Donald Trump's going to do that with with Tim Scott by any stretch. I think he's going to run a campaign, although I don't see it being successful. And I, you know, I, I tell people I love Tim Scott. I would give him a kidney. I would just never vote for him. And I think a lot of people are going to have that same opinion of, uh, of Senator Scott being a good, honorable man, just not president of the United States. Bakari Sellers and David Urban. We're going to get your vote, Bakari. <laughs> we'll see. David Urban and Bakari Sellers. Thanks, both of you. Appreciate it. Coming up, the dress code drama that has put a high school graduation in Mississippi in the national spotlight after two students were banned from walking across the stage. Stay with us. In our national lead, a second high school senior in Mississippi was banned from walking in her graduation ceremony because of the clothes she was wearing underneath her gown. That student's mother tells CNN she was pulled out of line just minutes before walking across the stage to receive her diploma. As CNN's Isabel Rosales reports, this comes after another student from the same school missed out on the ceremony for a dress code reason, but also a little bit more. Our comfort zone. I would rather stand up for what's right than be humiliated and feed into their their thoughts and their opinionated feelings on, you know, what's right and what's wrong with gender identity. This 17-year-old wants to go by her initials LB out of concern for her safety. She tells CNN less than two weeks before her graduation ceremony, she got pulled into the principal's office at Harrison Central High School in Gulfport, Mississippi. She had asked me what I was going to wear to graduation, and I told her that I was going to wear a white dress. Then she told me that I was not going to be allowed to wear a dress and I would have to wear boy clothes. According to the district's dress code, girls should wear dresses or a dressy pantsuit, and boys dress pants, shirt, and a tie. The policy does not specify students should dress by their sex assigned at birth. I feel like it shouldn't be, um, there shouldn't be gender in it. LB says she's been openly transgender since her freshman year. During prom last year, she wore this dress, she says, without a problem. I couldn't understand why they would change it so suddenly. So LB and her parents, represented by the American Civil Liberties Union, took the school district to court. The district pointed to this agreement LB and her mother signed two months before graduation, consenting to honor the dress code. Because when we signed it, we were under the impression that I would have the girls dress code. Right, because 
she identifies as female. So we went by the female's dress code. Superintendent Mitchell King wrote in court documents they rely on birth certificates to record a student's sex. U.S. District Judge Taylor McNeil, an appointee of former President Donald Trump, denied the family's request for LB to attend graduation, dressed as a girl. It was detrimental, you know, to know that I won't be able to experience my graduation. On Saturday, a second student was accused of violating the dress code at the same high school commencement ceremony. Karen Dallas tells CNN a school supervisor pulled her daughter out of the lineup 20 minutes before she was set to walk the stage for wearing black pants. The family says the outfit was never flagged during the hours-long rehearsal. She tells her that she could take her pants off and walk the stage, but she needed white shoes. So she could walk in her underwear, but she can't walk in pants. And Jake, mothers to both of these students, they're evaluating their legal options. CNN has reached out to the Harrison County School District and also to Harrison Central High School. We have not heard back. But the Superintendent Mitchell King did comment to our affiliate WLOX simply saying, quote, we follow the graduation policy of the Harrison County School District. Jake. Isabel Rosales, thank you so much. He's the first openly bisexual player in the NFL. Now R.K. Russell is opening up about football and coming out in a new memoir. He's going to join us live next. In our sports lead in 2019, former NFL player R.K. Russell, who played for the Dallas Cowboys and the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, made history by becoming the first active NFL player to publicly identify as bisexual in his recently Released memoir, The Yards Between Us, a memoir of life, love, and football. Russell describes how he was led to the sport, the hardships he faced, and the painful yet powerful journey of accepting who he is. And R.K. Russell joins us now live. Uh, have the book here, R.K., congratulations. Why was it important for you to share your story? Thank you. Thank you so much. It's important for me to share because in sports, specifically in male sports, we don't see a lot of our athletes not since the four years ago when I came out, not now, especially in football. You know, we've had Carl Nassib come out since then. But is the sports culture really changing? Are these stories really being shared? And, you know, just in the handful of people that have come out as male professional athletes, those stories are far and few between. I think it's important to, to champion those for all athletes. You also faced racism. Uh, you, op- you were open about the racism you encountered as a child in Texas. Uh, you write, quite, quote, um, as a black man in Texas, You know that when white men see you, they inevitably react usually with fear, prejudice, or hate, unless you have on the right color jersey, the right helmet, unquote. And later on, you you mentioned the fallout from Colin Kaepernick protesting um, police brutality uh, and racial inequality by taking a knee during the national anthem in 2016. Now, now since 2016, we've seen much more public protests of, uh, of this sort of thing, of police brutality and inequity. Uh, in the NBA, in the WNBA, MLB, uh, the list goes on. How important is it that athletes or those with a major platform speak up? I think it's very important, especially when, you know, you are a part of this community and though you are um, an athlete or a person at this this level um, that not many are at, it's important to always remember where you came from, to remember the people that have gotten you there, the people that support you in the communities that you also are a part of and that you embody um, as allies as well. It's important, you know, to be an ally, not only to your teammates, um, but to the communities that they come from and, and the places that that they feel very connected to. So I think, you know, to have the means um, to really affect change 
for people like you uh, and unlike you is, is, is a part of being a professional athlete. You're pretty candid in this book, um, not only uh, about the acceptance of your sexuality, but also about your struggle with grief, uh, your struggle with alcohol. You wrote, quote, black people don't go to therapy. They go to church, unquote. Uh, you explain in your view that the need to demystify um, the stigma around mental health, especially within the black community. Why do you think that stigma exists in the black community, in your view? I think that a lot of things, um, specifically here in America, around the black community, have been put in places to um, either oppress or to erase or to hold back or to restrain. I think that we can all agree, and if not, I surely believe in um, things like systemic racism, um, things that are inherently anti-black in our society. And I think the stigma around um, mental health and wellness is something that is specifically hushed for black people um, because those are the people that have had the most trauma here in this country. And to realize that and to realize the unrest uh, that being black in America has caused us will also, I think, incite um, change or resistance, incite, um, you know, a, a, a fight in black people that for a long time people have been afraid of, that we've seen at, at the head of, of Black Lives Matter movement um, in the protests that, that are ensuing now. And you talk about uh, being more than, than a football player. Uh, towards the end of the memoir, you write, quote, I'm no longer strapping on a helmet and shoulder pads every day to clash with other individuals. Today, my opponent is hate, unquote. Uh, how are you tackling hate? That's a, that's a tough opponent to tackle. Definitely. And, you know, I think it's an ongoing thing. I think that just like the game of football, it's something that requires lots of people. It's something that requires a team um, of people with the same desire and the same goals. I think that it starts on the very micro level of just making sure that you are challenging systems that are rooted in hate, that you are educating those around you, that you are creating and living an example and i think in the bigger picture is is to to incite or to be a part of a movement beyond yourself to to also create allyship because there are people affected by racism by homophobia by sexism that did not create those things and and you need to assist and ally those people our case book the yards between us a memoir of life love and football is out now rk russell congratulations on the book uh, and thank you so much for joining us thank you for having me President Trump's comments at the CNN town hall may have just landed him in more legal trouble with E. Jean Carroll. That's next on The Lead. But first, here's CNN's Wolf Blitzer with a look at what is coming up in the Situation Room. Wolf. Jake, we're following some really fast-moving developments right now in Ukraine, where Russian forces are claiming victory in Bakhmut after several months of truly excruciating fighting. I'll get reaction from the former Ukrainian defense minister. He'll join us. We'll also get his thoughts on the apparent attack on Russian soil, which a top local official is blaming on a Ukrainian sabotage group. All of that much more coming up right at the top of the hour in the Situation Room. Just in, in our Law and Justice lead, writer E. Jean Carroll is now asking a judge to amend her initial defamation case against former President Donald Trump to seek additional damages after he made the following comments at our CNN town hall with Mr. Trump. Take a look. They said he didn't rape her. And did I didn't do anything didn't. else either. You know what? Because I have no idea who the hell she is. But Mr. President, I don't know can who I, this woman is. They said, sir, don't do it. This is a fake story and you don't want to give it credibility. One That's thing why you, I didn't go. One thing you did do in this. And I swear, and I've never done that. And I swear to I have no idea who the hell. She's a Mr. whack President. job. 
Now, we should note this is a separate legal case than the one we saw earlier this month when the jury found that Trump sexually abused Ms. Carroll and awarded her $5 million for that and for defaming her. This lawsuit is about separate comments Trump made about Eugene Carroll when he was president, and that, that lawsuit is currently in the hands of a lower court judge. You can follow me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Blue Sky. If you have an invite in the TikTok at Jake Tapper, you can tweet the show at the lead CNN. If you ever miss an episode of the show, you can listen to the lead once you get your podcast. All two hours just sitting there like a big, delicious birthday cake. Our coverage continues now with Wolf Blitzer in the Situation Room. See you tomorrow. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So, you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.